You're listening to the teaching of Doxa Church. Doxa is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. May your spirit move in this gathering right now. I know there are some of us in this room who are ashamed of themselves. Some of us in this room are deeply hurt. And we all know that Easter is the day we're supposed to be in our best behavior. But we all know that deep down, many of us are not okay. Even though it's expected to look good from our culture and it sound good on Resurrection Sunday, we know we're not hiding anything from you. God, will you show us to yourself today? Will you free us from the bondage of expectation and the guilt of our own failures? Show us who you are and how to believe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, Amen. you may be seated. Ooh, it's great. Thank you so much, worship team. Praise God, that was amazing. So there's a man by the name of Josh McDowell. And Josh McDowell had an abusive, alcoholic father. He was also, from the age of six all the way up to the age of 13, horribly abused in other ways by a farmhand until he was unable to stick up for himself. And Josh McDowell joined the military only to sustain a head injury shortly thereafter and be be released from the military. So as a young man, uh, uh, self confessed, bitter, resentful soul who was, who was an agnostic. He enrolled in a community college in Battle Creek, Michigan, and eventually he had to write a paper. And on this paper, he said that he was going to disprove Christianity. He set out to disprove Christianity, and in the process of looking at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he became a believer in Jesus Christ. He accepted it. This is what he said. After more than 700 hours of studying this subject, I have come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is either one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever foisted on the minds of human beings, or it is the most remarkable fact of human history. That's a profound statement. The man who set out to disprove Christianity came to believe it. And the only thing that I would add to that is that it doesn't take 700 hours of research to know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most remarkable fact in human history. Realizing that Jesus rose is watershed to human history. If it didn't happen, our Christian faith would be a sick joke. But if it did happen, it changes everything. The resurrection of Jesus is the linchpin of our faith. But don't take my word for it. Listen to what the Apostle Paul himself says to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. And Paul will go on to say that if Jesus Christ is not risen from the dead, we are of all people most to be pitied. So this morning's message is going to be a little different. Usually we go through a book of the Bible. 
Right now we're working through 2 Corinthians, and we go verse by verse, and I give an applicational outline. Today we're not going to do any of that. We're going to exclusively look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ on which our faith is held. So I'm going to raise three questions. And even if you're not asking these questions or thinking about these three questions, there are three questions that you have to answer, and there are three questions that will determine the course of your life. How can I know the resurrection happened? What if the resurrection isn't true? And what does the resurrection mean for me? Those are the three questions that will determine the course of your life. Jesus Christ is the most talked about man in human history. We could start there. But that fact alone should tell you that there might be something worth investigating about Jesus of Nazareth. Christianity has been suppressed uh, by government elites from the very beginning. It's been mocked by scoffers and ridiculed in academia for over 2,000 years. But here we are, still worshiping the name of Jesus. How does something like that happen? Well, please take your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 5. I'm going to give you some time to find it because I want you to read this story along with me in the Bible. This is a story about the very early days of the church. This was before the, the name Christian was ever coined in Antioch. This would have been shortly after Jesus Christ ascended into heaven and he commissioned his disciples to go and make more disciples. And this would have been right after the Holy Spirit descended at Pentecost and the Spirit lit the flame at the inception of the church. So in Acts chapter 5, the apostles, they haven't even reached out beyond Jerusalem yet. They're all still in Jerusalem. They're starting to spread the word. The gospel is going forth. And I'm going to pick it up in Acts 5, verse 17. In this story, we're going to see the answers to these three questions about the resurrection that will determine the course of your life. Verse 17, Acts chapter 5. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night... An angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison so they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. 
Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. First question here today, number one, is how can I know that the resurrection happened? So humor me for a minute. If your entire faith rests on the veracity of the resurrection, how can you be so sure? And if you were living your life apart from faith in Jesus Christ, how can you be so confident that the resurrection never happened? How can you take that position? So you could say, well, David, the church is relying on the writings of a couple Galilean fishermen, a Greek doctor, and a converted, crazy, zealous Pharisee. What if it was just embellished a little bit, right? I mean, perhaps he didn't physically rise from the dead. Maybe he rose allegorically. Maybe he rose spiritually. His spirit rose. Maybe he never even died in the first place. Maybe he was just in a coma. That's what he fell into. So let's talk about this. Because many people who you go to school with, many people who you work with, many people who influence your kids, many of the people who write the entertainment that you consume believe something much closer to what I just said than the truth of God's word that Jesus died and he rose imperishable. The first clue that Jesus rose is seen right here in Acts chapter 5. If you truly believe in the resurrection, it changes you. Exhibit A is Peter and the apostles. And we'll get to that in a minute. But let's talk about death first. Let's talk about the cross. Romans were professionals at execution. They conquered and they crucified people to keep them in line. There, there were times when the Romans, these hardened men of war, crucified so many people that they ran out of wood and they ran out of places on the ground to plant the crosses. No one survived crucifixion. It was designed to drag out a tormentingly agonizing death for as long as possible. And if a Roman soldier didn't do his job, his own life would be taken. So they had all the motivation in the world to complete the job. But okay, so even if Jesus survived the cross and the Romans somehow took his disfigured corpse down and mistakenly threw him in a tomb and he was in a coma, having no medical treatment, mummified, wrapped in spices, spending the weekend in a damp, isolated cave, that's what revived him? That's, that's the story that you're going to take? And he rolled the stone away on his own? Oh, no, 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 no. The, the disciples came and rolled away the stone. Okay. Um, that was the line from the official powers that be. Sure, sure. The same disciples that were running and scared and in hiding. Peter, this man who denied that he even knew Jesus Christ to a little child just a couple nights before. These are the guys that risked their lives, came in, knocked out the Roman guards, and rolled the stone away and rescued Jesus Christ? That's the alternate story. And then this alternate story has to have another improbable twist. Even though Jesus was just crucified, he was hanging on to his life by a thread, he convinces them to give the rest of their lives to his cause. If you know anything about human nature... 
or if you're just a fan of logic and reason, I could rest my case right here, right here on this alone. Under no circumstances could Jesus fake something like this and then convince his disciples to go on and give their life for him because he conquered death in this scenario. They would be like, no, 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 no. You didn't conquer anything. You need a doctor, okay? Let's start over. Or maybe he never rose. Maybe it was just the women who discovered the wrong tomb and they were the culprits. That's the problem. As soon as you go down this excuse path, I want to warn you, it gets really sexist really fast. It's going to be cringe, but I will share with you this, this story anyway, so brace yourself. You know how women are with directions. It was early. They were emotional. The sun was just rising. It was in their eyes, and on and on this goes. I told you it was going to be a train wreck of an excuse. We just like, please stop while you're ahead. Please. So you're not doing yourself any favors. That obviously isn't a popular excuse anymore. But a century ago, it was a fashionable excuse from the German school of critical theory, which is still lingering around today in updated manifestations. But people who don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus have to work overtime to think of excuses. But do you see how ridiculous all of these excuses sound? Nothing makes sense. None of this adds up at all if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Why do we have secular history sources that tell us at this exact same period of time, the Roman government made it illegal to steal a body from a tomb in this random region of Judea? They were in control of the whole known world at the time. Why on earth would they be making that a capital offense if something didn't happen there? Think about this. If it really was a different tomb and they had that wrong, are you telling me that none of the religious leaders would have checked the right tomb themselves and found the dead body of Jesus and paraded it down the street? Just think about this. Where is the grave? You can go over to Israel right now. Every single popular religious figure throughout history, whether it's Abraham, David, Muhammad, you name a popular religious figure, we know exactly where their tomb is, where their gravesite is, and there's a shrine there. You go to Israel, you don't know where Jesus' tomb is. You can pay 20 bucks to this guy, and he'll show you a little cave over here. Pay another 20 bucks, and they'll show you a little cave. But they're like, we really don't know. It's like it never happened. Where is Jesus' tomb? Logic and reason are on the side that something supernatural happens. This is why in verse 29, Peter says, we must obey God rather than man. And then he tells them to their face exactly what happened in verse 30. Here's Peter, a changed man. In verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, by whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He received the Holy Spirit, which came with power and boldness, and his life radically changed. There's no greater evidence than the changed lives that turn the world upside down. 
Peter went from being a coward that was weeping bitterly, who had given up following Jesus, and he went back to his fishing, fishing business, to the powerful leader of the church who is staring the Sanhedrin down and to their face saying, you killed him, and he rose. And we're all witnesses of it. That's why I'm here. And that's why I won't obey you, and I won't shut up about this. But David, seriously, seriously, these are ancient people. They were under, under duress. They wanted Jesus to be alive. They probably had visions where they saw him alive. Well, doesn't that sound quaint, right? That's not what happened. Ben already read from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8, earlier this morning in our scripture reading time. The resurrected Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at the same time. This wasn't, a, this wasn't just a mass hallucination or a dream. I mean, do you even remember what you dreamed last night? Does your husband know what you dreamed last night? Can this entire room all envision the same thing? No, mass hallucination is not possible. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is saying, hey, most of these people are still alive. The invitation right here is go talk to them. James was the brother of Jesus. We had a series on James last fall with his letter. James wasn't a follower and a believer in, that Jesus was God during Jesus' earthly ministry. I mean, but think about it. If, if you had a brother, you'd probably have a hard time believing he was God, right? What would it take for you to believe that your own brother was God? It would take him dying and raising again to new life. That's what it would take. Every single, one of the, every single one of these guys, every last one, they saw Jesus raised from the dead, and it changed everything. Just think about the stories of the resurrection in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If they were just made up, they would be so much better, okay? Peter would be just like kicking down the sepulcher. They'd be rushing in. They wouldn't be the pansies that they basically are in the Gospels. Why, why, would, why would the women talking to Jesus think they were talking to a gardener? It doesn't make any sense. Shouldn't Jesus be glowing after he rose? I mean, and then, I'm not trying to pick on ladies today, but like, why would he even go to ladies anyway? Because in that time, in that time of history, a woman's testimony wouldn't have even counted in a court of law. So if you're making up a story, why are the women the first ones who see the resurrected Christ? Why not Joseph of Arimathea, the owner of the tomb, or anybody? Pick any man, and you would have a better story if you were making this story up. But that's not how it went down. You can laugh at Christianity, you can ridicule it, but it works. It didn't just change these immediate lives. He's been changing lives ever since then. He changed my dad's life. He changed my mom's life. He's changed my life. He's changed my wife's life. And he will change your life. Once you look to Christ and you behold his glory, and you can start watching your attitude change, and you become new. A genuine relationship with Jesus Christ will change your life. So how can we be confident the, resurrected, the resurrection happened? The answer is all of the evidence. And I have just begun to scratch the surface of it. You could read book after book on this. You could do your own study in secular history, just like Josh McDowell did. 
The evidence is overwhelming. Every single last one of these men went to their death. Besides, besides the Apostle John, he was the only one who died of natural causes. Every single other one was a martyr for the cause. If they were making this up and it was a lie, don't you think there would be some leaky holes in there somewhere? One person would have, would have recanted and saved their own life. All of the threads, and there are a million of them, lead back to Jesus was dead, he was buried, and he rose again. Next question, question number two. What if the resurrection isn't true? Acts 5 answers that question as well. Let's go back to the story and read more of it together, picking it up in verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged. And they wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. So can you picture this? Are you, are you tracking this story? Peter is standing before them. He says, you crucified him. He is alive. He rose. They want to kill the apostles right there. They're furious. Gamaliel says, get these guys out of here. Let's have a conversation. Send them out for a minute. Mind you, Gamaliel is not a follower of Jesus Christ, at least not yet. We don't know about what happened to him after this, but right here, he has tenure, he has respect, and he's about to speak some common sense logic. Verses 35 through 30, 39. Let's keep reading. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thudius rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. So I want to answer the second question here two ways. What if the resurrection isn't true? First of all, historically, from an anthropological perspective... And then secondly, personally, from a real-life consequences perspective. Gamaliel brings up a very brilliant point. Boys, let's not get emotional here. Don't panic. We've seen this before, okay? Thudius rose up, claiming to be somebody. He rallied a following of 400 people. They followed him. Thudius was killed. His followers dispersed. They came to nothing. After Thutis, and that is a key chronological note because if it, it differentiates him from another Thutis that the historian Josephus talks about, who would come a few decades later, but, but chronologically here, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census. The days of the census would have been the, like 30 years ago when Jesus Christ was born. There's a lot of historical data that points to this Judas the Galilean being the exact guy who started the Zealot Party. These were the nationalistic Jews who would hide daggers in their cloaks, and they, they were so against Rome, the occupying nation, that, that these guys would just take the daggers out and murder the Roman soldiers. 
but Judas the Galilean was their, was their leader at the time of the census. And he too perished, and his followers scattered and became a violent underground organization. Gamaliel is telling them, look, if this is a man, it's going to go away. It's going to fade out. You don't have to worry about it. But if it's of God, you can't stop it. Again, here we are this morning. Thousands upon thousands of people are worshiping Jesus Christ this morning. It hasn't stopped, and it never will stop. If the resurrection never happened, no one would be talking about this carpenter from Galilee who never wrote a book. It would have flamed out 2,000 years ago. That's logic based on everything we know about mankind. But what would that mean for you personally if there was no resurrection? One of two things. Either we are still waiting for the Messiah to come, like present-day Jews, and you toss out all the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, or there never was a Messiah, and this entire thing is made up, and God's revelation is baseless and has ultimately no bearing on your life. Really, life has no ultimate meaning if there's no Messiah. And I know that's a bold statement, but if you stop and think about it, if there's no Savior of the world, life gets really dark. You are still enslaved to your own sinful passions. People can create my truth, my own truth, and their truth can be different than your truth. But what happens when our two truths are diametrically opposed to each other? Well, there's no, there's no standard, objective standard of truth that's outside of ourselves. You can't both be right. So we have this facade of tolerance. Unity is redefined. And voices of dissent are banished because ideas that don't line up with the acceptable position are dangerous. It's the direction we're headed. I don't know if that sounds familiar with anyone. So who's to say here that the murder of babies is wrong? Who's to say that a man can't identify as a woman? Science isn't even science anymore. All of the people who experiment and follow the actual scientific method and push the boundaries and try new things, those people are pushed out. And even science turns into its own industrial complex where it's manipulated and selective. And if you don't get on board with what the mainstream says you have to believe, then all the other scientists are pushed out of their own station. That's where we're at. At the end of the day, what's, what's really the point beyond get yours, eat, drink, and be merry? There's not much point beyond that. And even the extremely privileged Life is not what it's meant to be, and especially for anybody who's not privileged. Life is a sad, hopeless existence, devoid of eternal value. For the privileged, it just takes them longer to realize that. Even the top 5% of the most prosperous people in the world, which includes everyone in America, in this room right now, you can pretend that it's all good for a while, you can choose to ignore everything creation points to, that there is a creator and you have an inner sense of justice. You can pretend that you're just a more fully evolved animal, but in the end, you're still restless and you're still missing something until you find your savior and enter a relationship with your creator. If the resurrection isn't true, 
in reality, we are all hopeless. You have to beat addiction in your own strength. Sometimes you can do that. Many times you can't. You have to deal with the stress of not saying the wrong thing to the wrong person at the wrong time. To keep up with the constantly changing goalposts of what's socially acceptable. You think it's restrictive to conform to God's expectations? Try conforming to other people's expectations. Christians can freely admit we fall short of the glory of God. We know our strength is in Christ and the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And and we know we can't keep the law. With God's law, at least it's clear and straightforward. The world standards are constantly changing. What was once good is now called evil. What was once evil is now celebrated as good. Stay on your toes out there. Don't offend the wrong person in the world. If you don't have the objective truth from God's word, what an oppressive chokehold life can be without Christ when you're real about it, when you're honest about it. Thank God for the resurrection. So now let's answer that last question, number three. What does the resurrection mean for me? Let's go back to Acts 5. Pick it up with me in verse 40. And when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They are rebels with the cause. They have unshakable resolve. They took their beating and they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Just let that sink in. Is your life even close to this? Do you have this kind of faith where you believe in the resurrection to the point that it makes you bold and confident and fearless? Do you love the name of Jesus so much that you laugh in the face of injustice that's enacted upon yourself? Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus is the Christ. The Christ, that is the long-awaited prophesied Messiah, the promised Savior of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God who was the sacrifice for your sin penalty, for your sins and my sins. For everyone in this room who has received the gift of salvation by confessing your sin, by repentance, and by, by turning to Christ, by grace through faith, the resurrection means that your faith will never be erased. Death could not contain your Savior, and nothing this world has to offer can hold you down. Nothing. Romans 8, 11 says this, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The resurrection means that you have the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Can I get an amen for that? For everyone in the room who knows that is true? When you truly grasp the gift of salvation, what you've been given, you rejoice, just like the apostles here. You can take a beating out there. 
in the world. But it pales in comparison to the eternal inheritance that you have waiting for you. You expect people not to understand you. You expect suffering, but you rejoice anyway. Those of us who have received forgiveness know how unworthy we are. We're still blown away that we've been adopted into the family of God. We don't live for our temporal causes anymore. We've been accepted into the beloved. We have a beloved identity. That creates a sense of fearlessness and boldness. The last application from verse 42 is the same thing that Paul has been speaking about in 2 Corinthians 3, where we've been for the last three weeks. It's carry the love of Jesus with you. You share a part in this triumphal procession. You are the aroma of Christ. And it's not just actions. You can build wells for clean drinking water. That's great. You better be a good neighbor, right? You do all those things, absolutely. But if you have know the resurrected Christ, it can't end there. Verse 42 says, they did not stop teaching and preaching. That's the Greek word keruso. It means to herald. Raise your voice. Speak with confidence. Don't lose hope in what you have in Jesus. He has a plan for you, and he has saved you for a reason. He loves you, and the more you see him, the more you will love him in return. The more you know that he loves you, and the more you love him, the more you will obey him. And here's the beautiful thing. He won't just change you. He will use you to change those around you. He will use you to change the world. I quoted Josh McDowell in the opening, and I mentioned his incredibly rough, abusive childhood. In his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, he talks about the power of forgiveness that he found only when he found forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus forgave him, he could forgive. And as he was talking about in that book, he said, my pastor had told me that forgiveness doesn't mean justifying or condoning what that man did, but it would begin the process of freeing me from the past, and it would offer a lost person the opportunity for redemption. Is what he means there is that by him forgiving the abuser, even though the abuser wasn't even asking for forgiveness, in his heart, he was letting it go. He wasn't going to let that control him anymore and hurt him anymore. The simple fact of doing that act of forgiveness because Jesus forgave him set up this relationship where that person could see his changed life. It would point that person to Jesus Christ. We've already talked about the consequences of your sin. Your sin separates you from God. It breaks the relationship because God is holy and we are not. We have all sinned. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's the book of Romans 6.13. And for anyone in this room who doesn't know Jesus Christ, you have an opportunity today to confess your sin and to believe. What are you going to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Worship team, you can come join me up on the platform here. 
I said at the very beginning that these three questions about the resurrection determine the course of your life. I hope you believe in life after death. There's no reason not to. We, are, we were created in God's image with a soul. We will live somewhere forever for the rest of eternity. So either you accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for your sins or you ignore the resurrection. And to ignore the resurrection is the same thing as rejecting Jesus. It's, a, it's rejecting his sacrifice. Saying thanks but no thanks is in effect spitting in the face of your Savior who sacrificed his life for you. Don't be that person anymore. I plead with you. Don't be a person who is in rebellion to God without a cause. I mean, I guess the cause would be yourself. It's your own glory. It's your own pursuit of happiness. Where's that getting you, though? It can get you to a certain level for a little while. But in the end, you are still restless. You are still hopeless. And if you end your life without Jesus, bringing in a relationship with God, the Father, your creator, you will eventually get what you asked for, and that is separation from God in hell. Jesus is alive. He is our living hope. You can stand with me. In a minute, we are going to praise him. But before we sing together, I don't have any more questions to ask you. I just want you to ask God one more question. I want you to ask God, what do you want me to do with the reality of the resurrection? I've given you the three questions that will determine the course of your life. This last question is between you and God alone. What do you want me to do with the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Do I need to start opening my mouth boldly? Do I need to start acting upon what I believe? Do I need to get over all the things of this earth that are distracting me and holding me back?